Well, if you would, turn in your copies of God's Word to the book of Habakkuk. We are in chapter 3 this evening. We are coming to the end of the book, the last chapter where what the prophet has learned is starting to be resolved. And as you look at chapter 3, you'll notice that the first part largely discusses and focuses on who God is and, and what God is doing. And then the last portion of the psalm deals with Habakkuk's reaction to all of these things. Tonight we're going to be looking at that first portion. We're going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy and inspired word. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kashan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flashing of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters." I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Let's pray. Lord, what a psalm. We are so grateful for your word. Lord, we need to hear from You. That's why we've come. We've come to worship You. 
and we've come to hear from you, we would ask that you would speak, that you would take your word and that you would speak to each one of us right where we are. Lord, we'd ask that you would tell us what you want us to hear and would you give us ears to hear. We'd ask for your help. Give us discernment, Lord. We'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, I have a question for you. Do your parents ever have to ask you to put away your toys two times, maybe three times, maybe even four times before you do it? Sometimes we have to be told to do something over and over again until we do it. But then we pick up the toys. Well, it's not just you. Uh, Adults are the same way. I bet you there's some mothers in here who've asked some fathers to mow the lawn two or three or four times before they get it done. Maybe it's getting the oil changed on the car. The truth is, sometimes we need to be reminded about things. We are a forgetful people. Doesn't that sound familiar to you from the Word? A forgetful people. Well, this passage seeks to remind you of what God has done, who He is, and what He's like. You see, it's designed to bring you comfort. This text says that God saves His people. You can see that in verse 13, can't you? He's coming out for the salvation of His people. This passage teaches that you should be confident, that you should be confident in the Lord to rescue. This is what Habakkuk has learned in his interaction with God. He's learned that the righteous shall live by faith. He's been transformed from someone who worries to someone who worships. He's gained confidence in the Lord. In the last half of verse 16, you see that Habakkuk, he's going to wait quietly. He understands that the Lord's going to fulfill his promises. He's got confidence. You should be confident in the Lord to rescue. What are the reasons that this text gives you for confidence in God? Let's begin answering that question. We're going to do so with our first heading, which is be confident in God's report. Be confident in God's report. Habakkuk chapter 3 marks a clear transition in the book. Uh, Chapter 3 is a psalm that's noticeably different, and the evidence is clear. Uh, Verse 1 begins saying, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. That's a term, a liturgical term that's probably familiar to you as you read the Psalms. And verse 19 ends by saying, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And you can also see those Selah markers in verse 3, 9, and 13. And earlier in this series, I said that Habakkuk was likely a temple prophet who served among the singers and the musicians. First Chronicles 25.1 says that the temple staff included men who prophesied with lyres, harps, and cymbals. And here in chapter 3, Habakkuk has given us a psalm that serves as a summary of what he's learned. Habakkuk is a prophet. 
So he knows firsthand. He knows that God speaks. He knows that sometimes God wants his word written down. After all, God commanded Habakkuk to write his vision on tablets. We see that in Habakkuk 2.2. God wants his word to be preserved. And, and besides, the prophet was familiar with Scripture. He works with the Psalms every single day as he serves in the temple. He's familiar with the written word that's already been received. He studied the five books of Moses. He is familiar with the word of God. You see, the prophet has seen God's report. He's read the record of God's working in history. And from that, he knows that God rescues his people. God repeatedly comes to the rescue of his people. And Habakkuk is comforted by that. It gives him confidence, confidence in God, confidence that God will rescue his people, confidence that God is going to rescue him from his enemies. Consider verse 2. Habakkuk writes, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and of your work, O Lord, do I fear. What Habakkuk knew in his mind, he came to believe in his heart. God is perfect in holiness, and he's perfect in his judgments. He's perfect in his decisions about how he is going to rule and run this world, even in the things that he brings into your life. And Habakkuk stands in fear, in awe, trembling. Sometimes fear is the natural reaction to tragic news. The prophet's heart is broken. It's broken. He's just learned that Judah is going to be disciplined for their sins. She's going to be utterly devastated. And even though Habakkuk is assured that the righteous shall live by faith, he cannot help but be awestruck at the judgment that's coming. But the prophet isn't just awestruck. He has hope, faith, He wants God to preserve his people. So he prays that God would come and rescue his people just like he had done in the past. In verse 2, Habakkuk prays, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The prophet says, in the midst of the years of Judah's destruction and captivity, revive your great works of old and rescue your people. He asks God to keep their faith alive and to preserve them. The Lord can restore them. And he's going to make them thrive again. Habakkuk says, in the midst of these hard years, make it known. Make your works known. Make your presence known. Let us see your glory. Let us see your saving hand. Make your mercy known. In wrath, remember mercy. You see, the prophet understands 
what is deserved, but he begs for mercy. The prophet is no doubt thinking of God's report. He remembers that revival that had just been experienced under the reign of Josiah. Maybe he was thinking of that time under King Hezekiah when Assyria had the whole city of Jerusalem surrounded and the Lord came out and slew the armies. Maybe the prophet is thinking back to all those times, all those times again and again in the book of Judges where God rescues his people. Maybe he's reflecting on how God fought for his people as Joshua and the people went into the promised land. Maybe he's considering how God came to his people's aid during the years of wilderness wandering. But the evidence in the following verses suggests that Habakkuk, Habakkuk is primarily thinking of how God delivered the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. Scripture reminds us of that deliverance over and over again, doesn't it? Have you ever found that to be peculiar? Why does he keep bringing this up? It's this running theme. It's because we are forgetful people. We tremble anew as if he hasn't told us a thousand times the stories of his rescuing. Because you and I need to be reminded that our God is a rescuing God. He's a rescuing God. We, we live in a fallen world and you are going to face trials. Maybe you're enduring one now. Maybe one is right on the horizon. Confront your soul with God's Word. Confront your soul with God's Word. Be reminded of His great works and recognize them before the Lord. Remind Him of His great works of rescue. Come to Him in prayer. Hebrews chapter 4 says to come to Jesus in prayer so that you will receive grace and mercy. Habakkuk reminds his readers of God's great acts of salvation from the past. And that should give our faith strength. And as the psalm continues, you see that you should be confident in God's power. That is our second heading. Be confident in God's power. Having offered his prayer, the prophet now begins to describe how God will bring salvation while alluding to the past. Verse 3 says, God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And that verb, came, is in the imperfect form. And and so what that means uh, to you and I is that it could be translated as will come or, or that he is coming. And Mount Paran is another name for the entire Sinai Peninsula or for Mount Sinai itself. In Deuteronomy 33.2, Moses says, The Lord came from Sinai. He shone forth from Mount Paran. Taman, on the other hand, is usually identified with Edom. Habakkuk seems to be retracing the route from Mount Sinai 
to the promised land. The point is that the Holy One of Mount Sinai is coming. That God that shook the mountain, that God that terrified people, that holy, holy God is on the march. He is coming. And as the Lord comes, all creation can't help but to burst forth into spontaneous praise as it beholds His glory. Verse 3 continues, His splendor covered the heavens. And the earth was full of his praise. And as the Lord draws near, it's like the sun that's dawning, the sun that's coming over the horizon, uh, the beam starting to show forth, the light uh, beginning to brighten the skies. Light begins to fill the skies until the sun stands before you so bright that you can't look into it. Verse 4 says his brightness was like the light Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. The concentration of his glory is seen in the rays that proceed from his hands like the sun. These rays symbolize the concentration of power that emits from him like beams of light from the sun. And and yet, the fullness of his strength is said to be what? It's said to be veiled. And the sound and sight of the Lord's splendor and power is audible to everyone, to the whole earth. In verse 5, the Lord's judgment is personified, isn't it? It's personified as pestilence and plague that go before and behind him. The text says, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Pestilence and plague are not only associated with judgment that was brought upon Egypt, you remember uh, the ten plagues, but it's also tied to breaking of God, the breaking of God's covenant. You might remember in Deuteronomy 28, uh, the blessings and the curses. And it's also associated with the coming judgment of the fourth horseman in the book of Revelation plagues before and behind him. This God of Mount Sinai is coming and judgment is coming with him. The coming of the Lord is overwhelming. And when he stands still in verse 6, the mountains crumble under his majesty. They simply crumble. The hills themselves acknowledge his presence and they bow down before him. Verse 6 says, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. You see, at God's approach, nature is simply convulsed. It's compelled to acknowledge who this is. This is the Creator. This is the one true God. And just as in creation, He measured the waters in the hollow of His hands and He marked off the heavens with the span, so now nature is completely at His disposal The nations are shaken as well. We see that in verse 7. Verse 7 says, I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. 
The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. The presence of God is terrifying. It is terrifying, as it should be, uh, to those who do not honor God. In verse 8, Habakkuk asks three rhetorical questions, doesn't he? Was God angry against the rivers and the sea? Of, Of course not. Of course not. They're in tumult on behalf of their creator. God was fighting for his people. You remember he was fighting for his people when he stopped the Jordan and it heaped up. Uh, He flooded the wadis for Deborah. He split the Red Sea for Moses. The prophet here asked the Lord these questions, longing for this kind of intervention again. This text describes God who is majestic and powerful beyond comprehension. Have you ever had something um, beautiful in, in front of you? Maybe it was a beautiful scenery. Maybe it was a beautiful moment. Uh, but for some reason, you were distracted and missed it. Maybe you're at something like a gradu- at a graduation, and as the student begins to make his way to the stage, you scramble for your phone, and then you're trying to, of course, you don't enter your code right the first time, and then you're trying to get your phone app open, and by the time you do, they're already walking away. You were distracted by the phone, and because of that, you miss the moment altogether. Similarly, you can be so distracted by your problems that you fail to see how powerful and how glorious your God is. And you forget all of those promises He's made to you. Habakkuk compared God to the sun. Some say that if you were to take the most powerful bomb that's ever been made by man, and you were to take it and you were to detonate it on the sun, that it would be like adding a cup of water to the sea. That's how much extra power you would be adding to it. The sun is incomprehensibly powerful. I know I looked for illustrations and the math is crazy. None of it would work. It's incomprehensibly powerful. How much more is its creator who powers not only it, but every sun in the universe? The Lord is much more powerful than your enemies or the problems that you face. You need to keep your eyes on Him. Don't be distracted. Don't just focus on the problems. Look to the Lord. Look to His Word. Look to Him in prayer. Focus your attention on Him. Let your heart be in submission to the Lord rather than your problems. God can protect you. He can provide for you. He can rescue you. This text says that God is powerful and it likens God to a warrior who brings justice and rescues his people. That's his character. 
That's how he describes himself. He describes himself to you like a warrior who's going to fight for you. Be confident in God's character. That's our third heading. Be confident in God's character. Well, the psalm pictures God as a warrior who goes to battle for you. Consider verse 9. You stripped your sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Calling for many arrows. Previously, the Lord had veiled his power, but now he is coming with the full force of his power to rescue his people. God wants you to know that he goes to war for you. And poetic language is invoked to communicate God's unrelenting advance for the salvation of his people. The earth's very surface is changed by his advance. Mountains writhe like someone in terror. The the sea shouts aloud and raises its hands like an enemy who's seeking to surrender. Draw your attention to verse 9. You split the earth. The end of verse 9. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. You see, the Lord stops even the sun and moon in its tracks. Verse 11 says, The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. God brings all of nature in subservience to his purpose of redemption, of redeeming his people. The Lord is carrying forth his plan to deliver his people. And the psalm continues to use this warrior imagery to depict God coming forth in judgment on Babylon. The Lord will trample his enemies. He's like a thresher who is threshing grain. It's as if he's taking his enemies and putting them into his mortal mortar and pestle. Again, is God angry against the rivers and seas? That was the question asked earlier. No, his anger is in response to the wickedness of the nations. His anger is in response to sin. His indignation is judgment for evil. Verse 12 says, You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Why is God on the march? Why is He on the march? Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. That's why he's on the march. He's on the march for the salvation of his people. This verse provides a key to understanding the relationship of this chapter to the rest of the book. God isn't ignoring wrongdoing or allowing the oppression of his people to go unpunished. He remembers his promises, and he goes to war for his people. Here we have God's answer to Habakkuk's complaints. His people will be saved. His people will be saved. 
Verse 13, look at it again. It says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. So we'd assume that the anointed is Israel. But some translations say, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. Did God go out to save his anointed, or did God go out to save with his anointed? And if he went out with his anointed, who is his anointed? The bad news is either translation is possible. The prophet Isaiah names Cyrus as the Lord's anointed, his servant that will free his people from Babylon. You can see that in Isaiah 45, verse 1. And 200 years after Isaiah wrote that prophecy, God used Cyrus II to Persia to conquer Babylon and to release the exiles of Judah. God crushed the kingdom of Babylon. Verse 13 continues, You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. God's enemies are destroyed. They're crushed. They, they, didn't, they didn't stand a chance. How, how could they stand a chance against a God like this? And you can see that his enemies, they're shamed. Not only are they laid bare, but they're even killed with their own weapons. Your enemies might be like a whirlwind to you. That's how Habakkuk described his enemies, isn't it? Your enemies might be like a whirlwind to you, whatever they are. Whatever they are. But God can crush them. He can lay them bare. The greatest enemy, what's the greatest enemy that you and I have ever faced or will ever face? Isn't it our guilt before God? Each one of us know we're guilty. We all know those secret sins, those ones that no one has found. Even if people have found out about a lot of your sins, they're still ones that only you know about. You and the Lord, that is. We're all sinners. Without forgiveness, we're separated from God. And without hope, our greatest enemy was sin and death. And we were like Babylonians. And judgment was coming. God is on the march. But God went to war for you. He sent His anointed, the Lord Jesus, who kept the law on your behalf, who died on the cross for your sin. God sent His Son to crush the head of Satan. If you belong to Christ, every promise of the gospel, every promise of the gospel is yours. It's yours. But we don't experience the fullness of our inheritance until we pass into eternity, do we? We're still living in a fallen world. God made this world good. 
He made it absolutely good. But Adam's fall brought sin and death and disease into this world. And because of that, we still experience suffering and pain. Do you need help? Do you need to be rescued? This text pictures God as a warrior who goes to battle for his people. That's how God chose to depict himself to you, is a warrior who will go to battle for you. Be confident in God's character. He's your Savior in more than one way. Habakkuk understands that the Babylonians are going to come and they are going to triumph over Judah. He's afraid. He's afraid because he believes. He knows that everything that God says will come to pass. In verse 16, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He'll wait quietly. He has confidence. He was going to have to hold on to the promise that God would deliver his people. He'd have to wait for the Lord to fulfill that promise. And listen, it wasn't going to be easy. He was going to have to endure the invasion of Babylon. He's learned that he must live by faith. The psalm was given to God's people as a source of comfort. It was sung in the temple as Babylon approached. It was read while the ancient church was in exile. It was meditated upon as they returned. This psalm was given because the Lord knows that we are a forgetful people. The psalm comforts readers by reminding them that God saves. The psalm reminds readers of what God has done who he is and what he's like. You should be confident in God's report, power, and character. This passage teaches that you should be confident in the Lord to rescue. Let's pray. Lord, words are easier said. They're easier read and they're easier spoken than done. And Lord, we do tremble at all sorts of things. And Lord, we are forgetful. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for drawing us week by week to hear Your Word preached. Lord, You know us well. And You know that we need to hear these things again and again. But Lord, we need things to get beyond our minds and into our hearts. 
Lord, we want to have confidence in You. And You know, Lord, how finite we are. We are so very, very, very finite, Lord. We would confess that before You. We are weak, Lord, and we need all the help You can give. Would You give us strength? Would You give us confidence in You? Would You help us to believe Your Word, to know it and to believe it, and to hang on to it with everything we have, knowing, Lord, that it will be fulfilled. We'd ask that You would help us, Lord, for Your own glory's sake. We'd ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.